On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with John Coletti of Coletti Cycles in Santa Cruz, California. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone with somebody who's a frame builder or in our little world of frame building and custom bicycles, and I try to help them tell their story about how they got into it, how they got where they are. I like to talk about perspectives, process, craft, uh, all these different things, you know, like why we do things the way we do them and would spend time on this and not that and these sorts of things. And so this week, uh, my guest is John Coletti of Coletti custom cycles in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, this is a little bit different than usual. We had some technical issues and um, we started the interview a little bit differently. So uh, I'm just going to jump right in. Hey, John, thanks for coming on to my podcast today. Thanks, Joe, for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's kick things off here. I wanted to ask you, you know, with your frame building career, uh, I think it said on your website that you got started building bikes in 2004. But you know, is that a, is that the the day that you took a class? Is that the day that you opened your business? What you know, I imagine you were into cycling prior to that. But like, what kicked off? What was the what was the catalyst or the moment? And like, what did the beginning of that whole journey look like for you? Yeah, good question. Well, the date that I list for starting Coletti Cycles is really more about starting Coletti Cycles. And the first frame I built was prior to that by a couple of years, I think. So I'd been into cycling since, you know, I was a kid, got more into it in junior high with the mountain bike boom, which was kind of in the, the late 80s as that was becoming popular and started riding mountain bikes with friends and going further Um and then becoming just more interested in outdoor recreation in general, also rock climbing and backpacking. So just that whole notion of getting out into the woods on my bike and the excitement of it all was really captivating. Um, and then later got into road riding and after college, uh, got a job in a bike shop and worked in sales and learned a whole lot about fitting started to sell custom bikes. I had a, a little bit of an introduction to custom bikes prior because I had gone to college at UC Santa Cruz and uh, I live in Santa Cruz again now. And here in Santa Cruz, we have Paul Sadoff of Rock Lobster Cycles, Cycles who's been building for a really long time. Um, Salsa Cycles was here for a while. Bontrager was here. Um, so during that time when I was in college, you know, Paul was building full time and was making a lot of cool bikes. It was like you'd go to the cross race and, you know, everybody's on rock lobsters. Um, he was really started to develop single speeds about that time. And that was a popular thing. So he, you know, I knew about that a bit, but I, I wasn't real familiar with it. And I, you know, Bond Traegers were everywhere. That was like, those were the cool mountain bikes. Rick Hunter had just started building at that point. So I remember uh, just seeing a, an early Hunter in the shop uh, so there was a lot going on, and I was really excited about those bikes. And at the time, it was kind of a high-end bike was, you know, one of these custom brands and builders. But I didn't quite, you know, get exactly how it all worked and, you know, was a little naive to that, but some exposure. So then later, after I graduated college, I got the opportunity to work at this really great bike shop called The Wheelsmith that was in Palo Alto, um, 
run by one of the brothers who had started Wheelsmith and Wheelsmith Fabrications and the spokes and all that. This is a bike shop. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really talented people there, a lot of knowledge, and I learned a ton being there. Uh, was doing fittings, was doing sales, started selling people custom bikes, and you know, solving some fit issues with custom bikes. Like it was really common to see women come in and the bikes are too long and the head tubes are too short. So we could get a Waterford or an Otisky or a Serata or some other brands um, done with a little bit of a custom geometry from sort of a full custom to maybe a head tube extension or a top tube adjustment. Um, I also had, had recently gotten one myself because my fit is a little bit weird. Like I have long legs, but a short torso. So a good friend of mine that was, I was on the UCSC cycling team with had a a friend back home who was making some bikes and we ordered custom road frames from him and it was more comfortable and it fit better and was great. So I was, had a bike that fit me better and was really excited about the uniqueness of these bikes. So, you know, it took years, but after moving around through some stuff and back to Santa Cruz, working in another bike shop here, but in the service department as a mechanic, uh, which was really kind of more of my passion was that more hands-on work, mm-hmm. mechanical type stuff, mm-hmm. is um, learning more about that. And this, the, the bug was still there, like this idea of, you know, custom bikes, how exciting they were and solving these fit problems and doing something that was high end and unique and personal and you could do things like, you know, 29er wheels were just kind of becoming cool. And so I had this Rock Lobster cross bike, and Paul made me a new fork that was extra big, and I could kind of cram in these 29er tires, at least in the front, <laughs> and put flat bars on it. And, you know, so it was like, I loved it. It was really great. And, you know, then it's like, well, what else do I want to do to modify this or change it, and what's next? And I just, you know, I'd had some experience with welding and machining. Um, My dad is a mechanical engineer and has a ton of tools and is a very hands-on kind of guy. So I was very fortunate to have that background in learning all kinds of stuff from him, being introduced to all these tools, including machine tools, and just loved that stuff, was fascinated by machining and, and welding in particular. So kind of this notion of like, wow, you could put together these different things of machining and welding and these cool custom bikes and innovative designs and solving fit issues and making them unique. And there's these people who do that. This is amazing. And I want to learn how to do it. So, you know, finally I said, okay, I've got to learn how to do this. And I was starting to look at the UBI courses, which Mm -hmm. were full for a long ways out. And (laughs) I got tired of waiting. So I contacted Jim Kish, who is a frame builder you likely know, who used to be in California. And he was teaching at UBI up in Ashland. And I was like, hey, I've got an aunt and uncle that live near you. Um, It's not terribly far from me. I, I have some level of experience with machining and welding and I've done frame prep and I've done some fitting and I've, you know, mechanic, can I, you know, is it possible to sort of hire you to teach me some of this stuff? And, and he did that and we did sort of an intensive one-on-one training at his shop, which was down near San Luis Obispo at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So learned a lot from him. And then, you know, I came back to Santa Cruz and didn't really have all the tooling so I was able to rent some time at Rick Hunter's workshop 
and started to, you know, made another frame or a couple frames, few frames there over time, just slowly, and was the hook was set so i was starting to buy more tooling so i got my welder i got you know, a milling machine and a lathe and finally once i got a frame fixture i could move from practice welding and and i was taking some welding classes to actually being able to make frames on site at my in my garage so at that point i could kind of you know get things started to happen a lot quicker yeah and so uh what was that learning curve like after you had your own machines? Like I remember I took a frame building class in 2010 and in the following years I learned cause a frame building class is only, you know, two weeks and I learned so much more from email list serves and, and, you know, Velocipede salon, MTBR, f- following people on Flickr and Instagram. And, uh, you know, you get to figure that out, but, but this was a little bit earlier. The internet maybe had less of a role. Like, how did you find your way through the the extended learning curve after having the base, basics sort of figured out? Well, there was some resource online, uh, a little bit less than now, but there was some. And so I was reading all that stuff, um, looking at pictures. There was a few builders that I connected with and started to ask a few questions of. Um, who were super helpful. Carl Strong has been was super helpful to me off and on for quite some time. Um, and, you know, Rick Hunter being around him and in his shop, I'd be like, oh, I just botched this. What do I do now? <laughs> so <laughs> he'd kind of bail me out or, or tell me how he would approach it. Because I'm like, what, you know, how do you deal with this issue? Um, which was really helpful. And a little bit from Paul Sadoff, you know, learning a little bit from him. But then, having my own tools, I was much more like, okay, problem solving on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the biggest headache was just the challenge of TIG welding that, you know, thin bike material. Yeah. And, uh, that was, you know, kind of the most challenging aspect to it, I think, because I had some pretty good tools, which were really helpful in terms of mitering. Um, but the, the welding certainly has been one that sort of, uh, you know, it was really tough at first and just slowly getting better at all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Tick welding, bike tubing. I, I always have such a can do attitude about most things in life that if you really want it and you put in the time, you can probably do it. You know, if other people do it, you can probably do it. But sometimes I forget, like there is a pretty long road to getting good at tick welding, bike tubing. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not amazing at it, but I forget sometimes how hard it was in the beginning and how many frustrated you know, practice welds I did before I even started to be oh, able yeah. to not, not follow the tungsten immediately and, you know, get, get something that looked at least kind of pretty, <laughs> uh, you know, regardless yeah. of whether or not it has all the right, uh, root penetration and, and heat and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a hard one. I, I think, um, hindsight kind of makes me forget how, how difficult that is sometimes, but it is, it is challenging, especially when you're talking about exotics, you know, like uh, super thin wall stuff. Yeah. And now I, I look forward to the welding a lot. I sit down, I just am like, this is a treat. I get to weld out this frame, you know, S3, that thin stuff is kind of fun. I know that I can produce a good result. And I remember how hard it was in the beginning and how frustrating, yeah. um, you know, and it's taken a long time. Um, I remember, I think Chris DeCurve said something like, I could show you how to TIG weld in five minutes and you'll spend the rest of your life learning how to do it. You know, it's like conceptually, <laughs> it's fairly basic. Like you do this, 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 but then mm-hmm. actually doing it well is, it just takes a lot of that s- subtle practice. Yep. Yeah. And I, 
when I learned frame building initially was brazing. And then when I started to teach myself, mostly self-educated in YouTube videos, how to do TIG welding, what I liked about it is that it, like, whatever happens, happens now. And that weld bead is, like, frozen in time. And however I did at that moment, you're going to be able to see it forever. And, you know, fillet brazing and, and that sort of thing, you can clean that up with hand files. So you need to do it yeah. right. But but it's a little bit like there's there's a there's an energy yeah, I mean, in that moment when you're when you're laying down something that will be visible forever. It's uh it's kind of exciting. Yeah. Yeah, especially working with titanium because you know most of the time we're not painting it or powder yeah. coating it, so it's really obvious and right there to look at forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a little bit about the, I know something that you've done with a lot of your bikes, or maybe it's all of them. There's like the serial numbers that you hammer into the bottom bracket shell is a reference or a name of a character in a Wes Anderson movie or something. And I, I think you have like a life aquatic mural sort of piece on the wall in your shop. And, um, and, and I think even some other bikes that were not specifically Wes Anderson references had a similar sort of like thematic thing going on. Uh, I'd love to discuss that some, like where that came from and how that plays into your idea of what custom really means. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan and my favorite movie is probably the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. Uh So we, you know, I, it just kind of gave me some ideas. Like I was inspired by the movie. There's some fun colors. I really like the ocean and we're close to the ocean and scuba diving and stuff. So there was a number of things that sort of overlapped and it was just good fuel for dreaming up some different ways to approach things. And then as I started to do a little bit of this stuff, other people that are into that, they're like, that's awesome, or it's exciting or whatever. And then they, they want to do some stuff too. So for myself, I did this, um, one of my scramblers in a Belafonte inspired paint scheme with the stem painted yellow. And it said Jacqueline, you know, crossed Mm -hmm. out. And, um, then I did the the bike in blue and white and, and put a Jaguar shark on it and, <laughs> and stuff. So that was just a fun personal thing, but I had a commission for a bike that wanted a, a, a life aquatic theme. And we did even more stuff on that bike. Um, it was like a town bike with this neat paint job and stuff. And we've got some red caps made with a little color band that kind of looks like it. We've got some stickers and then, yeah, from time to time I've had people that have a little, touch like that on their bikes um Mm -hmm. and yeah boba fett was another one that we did which um you know again it was just sort of a jumping off point for you know how can we come up with something interesting for a paint job for a bike that's not what's already been done over Mm -hmm. and over like Mm -hmm. you know panel paint jobs there was a point in time where everybody seemed to want a panel paint job so i just kind of got tired of it because i'm like you know we've been doing this since the 70s like it's not bad it just doesn't it doesn't bring anything new to the conversation. And I would like to see, you know, like what else could we do? What's out there? Because the idea with this, you know, to your question of a custom bike is, is it's unique. And hopefully it's something that excites us, not just from the ride quality, but just the concept of it, the look of it. It, It's emotive in that way as well. And that it should be representative of, you know, what I'm doing and what my customer is interested in and, and all that stuff kind of wrapped up. So the Boba Fett thing was 
you know, I'd always, since I was a kid and Star Wars came out and I was interested in all that, you know, like many, but those colors of both that was really interesting and particularly that kind of gray blue. Mm-hmm. So I started working with my friend, Peter, who is, uh, does graphic design, uh, work for, for me. Um, he's here part time and it's like, Hey, let's work on a, you know, paint job that's inspired by this. How do we draw? draw some of these elements out without making it too obvious. Like it shouldn't just be, you know, look like some toy or, or a real obvious thing, but has some of these elements. So we just use that to like pull out colors and, and shapes and patterns. Um, and I was really happy with how it came out. And it seems like a lot of people really like that paint job quite a bit. Um, and Peter, our graphic designer did basically that same, design but in in titanium on his gravel bike that we made where it uses polished titanium and two different kind of colors or shades of media blasted titanium to create all the graphics on the frame so nothing's done in paint or anodized it's all titanium with different surface treatments to do those patterns and such yeah yeah i think it's i think it's cool and i think it is a lot of fun uh, to do those kinds of things. I know, uh, you know, Eric Norin, who is doing Peacock Groove, would, would do a lot of things with a very different kind of take, but it was like kind of whimsical and kind of, um, mm-hmm. you know, thematic. And I see what you do with yours. It's much more like the, the you know, diamond frame bike that's after a pretty straightforward experience, but I imagine very dialed in. It's it's not <laughs> it's not straightforward in that it's not focused on the result, but it's very focused on that. Uh, but then, like the the artistic direction is thematic, and so you know it's like kind of different right. different takes on on how you would do uh, yeah, like a sort of cr- creative theme on a bike. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think that your observation is correct. It's like my. That my idea with the bike is, you know, I'm fairly pragmatic in that <clears throat> the bike needs to be, you know, fit somebody, handle well, be optimized in terms of the level of stiffness, the ride and handling characteristics. Um, I want to use the best tubing I can. So all those things kind of come first. And I don't want to use, you know, weird, I don't know, what, sorry, what I'm calling weird stuff like adding extra top tubes or putting on, you know, lots of extra curves or big plates or you know something in a way that's done within the metal work to make it look different mm-hmm. i mean not that there's something wrong with that i'm not really criticizing it i'm just saying that's not where i'm headed yeah. and so i feel like i can make a bike that's a really high performance or more straightforward bike i suppose you could say and then we can have some more fun with the colors and the paint to make it look different or unique or colorful in a way that um you know doesn't um you know, require me to use like a you know, extra weight on the frame or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to improve on the, the function of a diamond frame and especially a, a, a well-designed and finely tailored diamond frame. And so, uh, you know, there can be reasons to vary, to, to stray from that. But, uh, yeah, if, if what you're trying to do is make a road bike or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that, then like, why, why would you? Yeah, and with using kind of the lightest, you know, best tubing possible that's sort of designed for that type of bike design in those dimensions. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, and and uh, and also, The Life Aquatic is just such a fun movie. I, I would imagine a lot of our <laughs> listeners probably have seen that. And if you haven't, um, a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> really good. 
uh, anyway, just yeah. reminds me of all the the best yeah. scenes, which I don't need to try and rehash or something, but uh, they're they're great. Uh, anyhow, <laughs> um, I should watch that again. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Your engine blew up and all your fuel's been stolen. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Well, I certainly know how you feel. Some crooked fuckers just stripped my Sea Lab. You know, probably the same dudes. So uh, another thing that I had on the list to talk about is something that's on your website talks about, you know, the space that you're in, the workspace is like sort of a live work space. And so from what I can gather, it looks like you have a little stairway that goes up to some sort of apartment above the shop or something. And, uh, and so you yes. have a pretty well organized and, and, you know, attractive looking shop that's, that's laid out and pretty clean and looks pretty cool. But right. then right above that, you have, uh, you know, your own little space. And so I think that's interesting because, you know, for me, I spend like 40 minutes a day just driving to my shop and back, maybe 50 minutes. And there's a cost associated. If you ever have, for instance, like two hours in the evening that you might like to tinker or get some work done, but you're going to spend 40 or 50 minutes of that commuting well, then you probably aren't going to bother, you know? And so like, there's, there's big, uh, it can be very attractive yeah. to think about being right there. Uh, at the same time, um, it can be nice to have some separation from where you work. And then right now we're living in this moment where, um, you know, people are sort of being asked to stay at home. And if you love being in your shop and you have work to get done, but that's at some other place that you're maybe not allowed to go to, that's another thing that I, we've been thinking about a lot this week. And so, uh, you know, anyone want to discuss that with you anyhow? Yeah. Um, we here in California, we do have a shelter at home thing happening. So basically non-essential businesses are closed and um, we're supposed to stay at home. And like you said, I am at a live workplace. So downstairs is a workshop and upstairs is our apartment. And so I don't have a commute. I'm generally here by myself and um, I'm just keep on working away as long as I have the materials to do so. Uh, which is, is great, but yeah, it's a, it's a great way to go, um, for a number of reasons. I mean, like you kind of outlined, there's some efficiencies and that you don't have a commute. Um, you're sort of sharing a little bit of like heating, uh, internet service, um, some of the power, basically our live space does not take up any physical footprint on the land. So in terms of like sprawl and eating up green space with building out into the outside of the city, you know, we're not really participating in that, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, the building is a green certified building and um, there's a lot of energy efficiency components to it. But the neighborhood project initially as drawn was received a, a certification, I think like a lead silver or platinum level designation for a neighborhood project, given the proximity to transit and um, how, you know, less space it took up and all this stuff. So I, I like it. I don't have a hard time with the kind of separation of live and, and work. And I think that that's probably more of an issue for people that utilize a lot of technology, like that you can always be reachable on your phone. Mm -hmm. But I don't check my email on the weekends. I don't do it in the evenings. I get up, you know, start working and work through the afternoon into the, you know, till dinner and then quit. And I'm tired out and done. So you know, I just put it aside and come back to it the next day. Um, but it's great to be here. It's a great shop. I feel super lucky to, to be in the space and have a, a big workshop and a compact live space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always, I always feel like I would, uh, you know, 
wherever I head in the future with my workspace and my live space. Like, I don't think I need that much live space. I'm in a relatively mm-hmm. small apartment that I share and, uh, and I don't, I don't really itch for more. Like I, I want more space to like maybe, uh, work on my car sometimes or just to have more machines and to be able to like better manage projects. Cause I like doing stuff, but like at yeah. home, I-, I want it to feel cozy but I don't need that much yeah. space. I have a small bedroom, small living room. You know, a kitchen is important because mm-hmm. that's workspace. Kitchen is, is it's workspace of the house. But um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. So anyway, it's it's interesting to think about these different ways that you can situate yourself with regard to your shop. And I think with this with this pandemic and this virus that we're living through, I think this is a unique moment in time that we might never experience something quite like this again. Um, and so to to like build your life around how to stay busy in a pandemic is maybe silly, but for the people that I know right now who have a shop on their residence that they live at their shop, that's amazing. And, and even for me, you know, my shop is my own and I don't, I don't stand to infect anyone by driving my car there and going in because nobody else has access to it. And yet that, that might not be an, an option for me pretty soon here. So yeah. <laughs> and I'm not going not to complain cool about that too to much. how cool is it to have but. a milling, yeah. And how cool is it to have a milling machine and a TIG welder in, in your house? You know, it's yeah. like you get I, an idea strikes and you can go down there and make a part or fix some weird thing. Or, mm-hmm. you know, on the weekends, I like to do other non-bike projects sometimes. So it, I love this. It's fantastic for me. I mean, yeah. if I wasn't building bikes, I would still want to have a place that look like this. But this building bikes gives me a good excuse to have a mill and a lay and the welder and all this stuff take up all this space with you know like it may it's it's the excuse because it's my job (laughs) yeah yeah for sure and um it's funny sometimes i'll be at home and like the simplest little you know around the house task that i need some tool for well like all my tools are at my shop i have like such a like just embarrassingly small and ill-equipped and cheap toolkit here and so i need to do something and i'm (laughs) you you know it's just it's embarrassing for somebody who has nice tools and knows how to go about stuff and sort of like you know i I think uh one of the one of the guys i've learned from calls it workman-like fashion but you know you you know what it's like to have like the right wrench the right tool for the job and then yeah trying to do something with a pair of needle nose pliers when it's absolutely the wrong tool but that's (laughs) that's just what you had and they're and they're they're made out of you know cheese grade pot metal or something and so you can't it's just <laughs> but it's it's, it's funny yeah. to, to and own you're this like stuff. i'm disgusted with myself for using a needle nose pliers trying to tighten this nut that's horrible yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's where you find yourself when and it's like yeah. what am i going to do buy like two of every single thing there was a period where i had worked at a machine shop and i had had my own shop and after i quit that machine shop i had two sets of nice Mitutoyo digital calipers and I brought one home just so that if I ever needed to measure something around the house I had a <laughs> you know a nice a nice yeah. measuring tool other than like like a tape measure in inches only right like that's no uh-huh. way to measure stuff around the house so <laughs> it's like here's right? like yeah it's like $120 digital calipers that I got for for like yeah. measuring the, uh, the the fitting on the sink or something yeah so yeah I, I think that's really I cool get you. I would love to have that uh, sort of um you know, just enough distance, like a, a shop in your backyard or, or just below your little apartment or something. It sounds really nice to yeah. me. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, like one, I mean, a, a bummer is that in California, particularly there, the housing costs are so high. And so, you know, it creates a, a problem. And one of the ways to help to reduce that 
burden is to have infill development. And I'm hoping that this means that we'll see a continuing um, change in how they regulate zoning so that it's easier to have live spaces in commercial areas or build ADUs in your backyard or a workshop at your house, you know, cause there's yeah. a little, it's a little restrictive still. So mm-hmm. as that changes, we'll see more projects like this one that we're in, that's a live work building and people can maybe do that stuff wherever they're at. Yeah. And something that just because of the sort of government regulate or well not regulation the the rules that are coming out about how to you know sort of stem the spread of to stop the spread of Mm -hmm. this uh, pandemic right so like uh governor cuomo here in new york said you know not all all non-essential businesses must close and so for me uh i think according to the rules like manufacturing is exempt because it's considered essential well like making people fancy bike tooling is certainly not what they mean by essential but but that's beside the point because pretty much every business involves people working together. And so like, that's what they're talking about is like people congregating and mingling and spreading. Yeah. Right? And so like, if I literally go to my shop and I don't see or cross paths with anyone, that's not what the rule is written for. But like, what that is, is that's a Correct. sign that these businesses that we talk about, like small frame building shops and small sort of like, uh, you know, building your own shop, you know, sort of bootstrapping it or whatever you want to call it. But like this, this era of like uh, DIY makers and tinkerers trying to build a side hustle or a business and turning it into something bigger that is legitimate. You find yourself in this weird space that like zoning wasn't written for you and your business and like yeah. the laws. And, and if you go searching for small amounts of commercially viable space, it's, it's tricky because like the landlords who sell residential space don't want you doing torch work. And then the shops that actually sell stuff that's geared toward industry, they want to sell you, you know, 5,000 and up square feet in a warehouse. And that's, <laughs> that's way too right. much, uh, you know? And so it's, it's, a, yeah. And we find ourselves, like people who do frame building and, and other businesses, you find yourself in this middle ground where it can be really hard because there's just not a very well-established market for that kind of thing. And the yeah, the zoning and the regulation, it's just not written with you in mind because you comprise such a small fraction of the, the actual business in the world. Yeah, right. It'll be interesting to see how things continue to shift around that if we see more domestic production, uh, more small-scale production, uh, changing zoning regulations because of rising housing costs and environmental concerns, which, you know, it's also good to have, you know, less land taken up and um, live in a little smaller space. So yeah, there's a lot of advantages there that will hopefully move these things forward. Yeah. But for the immediate thing, I feel very lucky that I can continue to work because I know that, I mean, I just feel so bad for people that are in this such a hard position where, because of this virus and they can't work, um, you know, businesses are just having a rough go of it, you know, with no income coming in. Yeah. And, you yeah, know, and- I, for now I'm okay. I've got some bikes queued up with materials here. I've still got some argon, so I'm just chugging away, but, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. And I, especially, I really am not envious of business owners who, uh, who want to do right by their employees and they have employees and really like 
the best thing to do would be paid sick leave, obviously. But like, that's that's a ridiculously challenging proposition for a small business, uh, especially in like the service sector or something. And I, I don't know what all the solutions are. I think there's a lot of potential yeah. solutions. But I, what I'm saying is, I'm really super thankful. I th- that's not a reality for me to like consider that because I know, you know, a friend of mine who owns a bike shop in town that's a restaurant also, and like that's. It's tricky. There's there's a lot of people in these situations that are just uh, like, what do you do? You know, there's just no there's no good answer right now. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. It's definitely a very um, scary time, and hopefully, because there's so many people that are in a similar situation, as we'll be able to find ways to work together to make pull through this. Yeah. So uh, I I also wanted to talk about while we're on this call, the, the value of having a good working relationship with the folks who paint your bikes. And so the paint work on your bikes, we talked about a little bit is, is pretty cool. You know, some thematic stuff and, and where you're not doing themes, uh, just, you know, it's just good looking stuff, uh, for, for that finishing work, I would imagine if it's all titanium, you probably do that yourself, but for paint, you send it out. Like what is the, what is the value of like a really, you know, a, a good professional relationship with your painter? Yeah. Um, good question. That That is right. We do our titanium finishing in-house and paint and powder coat work gets sent out. And I'm using uh, dark matter finishing, which is Ollie. And because, I mean, the guy is amazing. He's super good. The stuff always looks great. It seems like he can accomplish technically just about anything. Um, but how that kind of evolved was, you know, initially when I got going, Spectrum was sort of a well-known, um, finishing company and they did a lot of custom bikes and they were super good at powder coat and they could do kind of, you know, a multiple color thing like powder coat your frame and put your logo on it and then a powder clear on top and your average industrial powder coater is like, what are you talking about? Like, you can't (laughs) do that. So I was using them and they were super great people and, and really nice. And, and Ollie was working there and was doing many of my bikes. And so I had worked with them on the phone. You know, he might have a question about what do we want to have happen or what were our options. So I knew him a bit. Those guys had done great work. And then when they sold the company and it moved and a much of the staff shifted, Um, I, you know, Ollie, I found out that Ollie was still working, but he was staying put in his town on his own. So I started sending him stuff and, and basically he's almost the only person I ever work with for paint and powder coat because Mm -hmm. I, I like Ollie. He does a great job. Um, we've worked together for, you know, years and, uh, it's not, there's no problems. And so I really am not motivated to go elsewhere or mm-hmm. you know maybe it would be a good idea to kind of have some backup options but i just haven't really pursued that yeah um another thing that's been helpful is you know that well you know in terms of um you know you often kind of i think a lot of your audience is people who are building bikes is i found that for myself that the finish stuff for people it tends to be like their hardest decision is like figuring out what parts they want and what kind of bike and materials and brakes and tires, that's fairly easy. But when you're like, okay, what color do you want? They're like, I don't know. <laughs> Let me think about it and change my mind for like three months. And it's like, yeah. you know, they would, I would often do like mock-ups or, you know, more ad- ad- advanced mock-ups and we'd go around in circles and, you know, it just became, I think 
a point almost like something that's really fun that can be a little stressful for people because they're worried about getting it wrong. Like this mm-hmm. is the last bike I'm ever going to buy. And, oh, no, yeah. You know, it's got to be perfect and stuff. And I think that like, yeah, get what you want and, and may, and like it, like, but don't worry about it because you will like it. You can always repaint it later too. Anyhow, this whole thing and and sort of me spending a lot of time that was basically unpaid in trying to facilitate getting people mock-ups and options on different various colors and paint jobs it was a real time uh, took a lot of time and i wasn't getting paid for it so i started to create sort of like standard designs that i wanted to use and then i could say, here's the design, here's some colors that we like for this design, and here's how much it will cost. And then there's an option that they could select instead of just being like a full custom thing, which we also do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been helpful for us to develop these designs and we continue to dream up new ones and kind of prototype them and work them out and try things and communicate with Ollie on colors to find good powder coats and stuff like that. So we have our kind of standard designs that we continue to evolve. And then we also do a full custom program where people can get almost anything they want. And then what we'll generally do is get notes from the customer on some of the stuff that they like and then we will work they'll I'll basically connect them with Peter our graphic designer and he can sort of tease out some of those ideas and we'll throw around some brainstorm on ways to accomplish this on a bike and then we start to do some mock-ups and and he'll create the vector graphics and make a design drawing and send it to them and the customer will pay for graphic design time that it takes to do whatever it is that they would like us to do for them and then we can get an estimate and get it painted so there's kind of an in-house component of a graphic designer as well as the finisher Mm -hmm. so with us being able to get all the vector graphics which are you can resize without losing their um, resolution and for us to do really good designs and send Ollie really good instructions. A lot of times he doesn't even have to call us. He can just do it based on our instructions. So mm-hmm. that part of the program has been really helpful, um, for us. And I think for our, you know, the consumer, um, and hopefully for Ollie. <laughs> yeah. When I, um, I asked a similar question to, uh, Brian Hollingsworth from Royal H way back he was one of the earlier guests on the podcast and i thought his answer was really interesting because i asked him something about like what's the most important part of the relationship with paint and he said what i what i assumed he would say was something like oh you know like somebody who's professional and who can ship on a deadline and whatever but what he said was somebody who is enthusiastic and somebody who you know like by the time you finish the frame you have so much time in it especially with lug work and that sort of thing and so like to be able to hand it to someone who is just starting the like you know it's a joint effort whereas like if you had to run that baton all the way from fabrication and then through the whole paint process you'd almost be tired of looking at it or something but like when you could do a relay race and you hand it off to somebody if they're enthusiastic and they're ready to like get started on the project when you're maybe tired of looking at it and that was an interesting perspective that i hadn't thought of i don't know if you've ever thought about that yourself but like what that's like to work with somebody who who's motivated and who is excited to to make something really special um yeah i think my angle would be slightly different because we usually do the design work and um, then Ollie will execute it. But 
I would say from my perspective, it's like I put in a lot of time and effort into making this thing as best I can. And I don't even worry when I send it to Ollie. I'm just like, I know that he's so good and it's going to come out fantastic. And the masking is right. There's not mess ups where when I've used a couple, you know, like I want to get a fork powder coated locally at an industrial yeah. place. They never can do it right. No. You know, and they hated me over there when I used to bring them tie. Well, maybe not. They didn't hate me, but you know, they knew I was really particular. So if I bring them a tie frame for media blasting, if there was something off, I'm like, Hey, we missed a spot. We got to do this. It's got to be really uniform. They're just like, you know, your standards are kind of they're high. And mm-hmm. I know with Ollie, you know, having a good painter like him, I can send it to him. He does excellent work. It comes back. That job is done well. I can stand behind it. I feel good. It's, it's just great. And then now that I brought titanium finishing in house, I have a giganto bead blast cabinet and air compressor and I do anodizing and we have a vinyl cutter so we can do masking and we have our graphic design that way I can you know make sure to get that done correctly and how I want it and you know try new things to experiment with so that stuff's great but basically in reference to your question I think that my angle is like having somebody who's pro that does a good job and and likes what they do is just great because it's just you know, continuing this cycle and it just feels like, um, such a great partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, obviously the, the paint relationship is super important and, uh, yeah, I would love to get Ali on the show too. And, um, uh, learn about, learn about his experiences with, with spectrum and beyond. Um, yeah, it seems like there's a number of companies out there now or individuals who are doing some really great stuff in bicycle painting, which is fantastic. I mean, Maybe in part it's because we're using Instagram so much more, and so it's uh, easier to find and and the stuff and see it. Where it might maybe back ten years ago, it's a little more invisible. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's yeah, it's great. I think the bar is always getting raised, and which I think is you know it's a good mm-hmm. thing. The craft is evolving, but like um, I something I, I don't know if this is completely historically accurate, but I feel like there's a there's a new generation of frame painters and i'm thinking you know black magic paint and dark matter and i'm thinking of uh hot tubes uh you know jordan lowe and and uh ben falcon there's just a handful of people i'm sure i'm missing a bunch of people but who i think are not only really good technical painters but they're also really have a keen eye for design and color and um i think what i would notice when i look at older era custom bikes is like i'm sure those painters had the technical chops to really knock it out of the part park or the the better ones did you know with masking and all that but i just think there's so many folks now where you could uh, these guys that i mentioned and, and others where you could send them a frame and you could say like i'm not sure exactly what i want but like i've seen the stuff that you do and i trust your judgment and i would think they would send back something that really looked sharp from like a design perspective regardless of the craft of the work and then i think they also tend to do really sharp work too. And um, there's just like more of an eye for, I think, design maybe than there used to be. That's a great point. And I think for a small builder, that can be a real asset where because my friend Peter is a great graphic designer and likes doing this stuff, we've been able to do a lot of stuff in-house. But, you know, prior to having his expertise on hand, it was hard to do that stuff. So I think that, You could think of a painter as a partner in that they're doing finish work, but when you want to get some unusual stuff done, it's really helpful to bring in 
perhaps a graphic designer or even better would be like you're saying a painter who has the um the skill um kind of technically but also like the artistic eye that you sort of resonate with where you can sort of develop mm-hmm. um paint schemes together with them or that that maybe they would be something where they could take on working with your client so that if it comes to a specialty paint job it might be possible to link up the painter and the client and be like okay you guys work out what you want to do and execute it you know um, so that it offloads some of that stuff from the builder, yeah. um, just in terms of, you know, trying to stay, um, using your time well and, um, and, and money and all that. Yeah. And something that I noticed years and years ago, I wanted to get like Cobra logos and stuff for my bikes. And I had this thing where like, I would know somebody who did some design or, or, you know, they'd do drawings or whatever. And I'd say, yeah, you could make me a logo for this. Like we could trade these things or I could pay you for that. And anyway, something that I learned pretty quickly with that was that if they're good at their style and I have an idea for something else and I try and explain and kind of micromanage the project to get what I want, does not work. It's a recipe for failure. But if you go to someone who you just love their like portfolio, you know, like all of their artistic decisions that they normally make are things that resonate with you to begin with. You could just kind of tell them like, yeah, like you have what you'd say, like carte blanche, like you can do whatever you want. And I trust that it'll be pretty cool. And, um, and that I think maybe not always, but a lot of times with working with other creative people is like a really great way to go about it. If you have the opportunity is to find someone whose work already resonates with you and just tell them like, you know, just do whatever you want. Like, I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And I think to some extent, that's how our customers link up with us. The builders is that they are looking at the things that we all do and they sort of self-select in like this person's style seems like that's the things I'm interested in. They build the kind of bikes that I like to ride. Um, you know, the, the paint jobs or the aesthetic style is, is in alignment with, with kind of what I like. And then it just really makes the process go easier, mm-hmm. you know, and likewise, it's like, we're here to build bikes. Painters need bikes to paint. We need painters to paint the bikes. You know, it's a great, you can, if you can develop a good relationship there, I think it's just such a, it's fun and it's a win-win and it can really just make your bikes look better. You know, yeah. some people are super good at, you know, having an, eye for color combinations and how this stuff lays out and seemingly a bike would be really easy to come up with designs but i find that it's can be very challenging because of the shape and the dimensions of the tubes Mm -hmm. so you know like you're saying a lot of these painters do have a lot of eye for that and they try a lot of stuff and they sort of know what works so yeah they could be a great partner to work with in terms of you know helping you to create a more you know complete finished project that really resonates with the customer and yourself Absolutely. Yeah. So I think we have, uh, we've covered paint pretty well. I could talk about that for a long time, but, um, another thing (laughs) I had on the list here is, um, so a friend of mine, Elliot Hart does, um, uh, healer cycles out of Tucson, Arizona. And he and I were chatting, uh, Instagram a couple weeks ago or something. And he mentioned that he had just spent some time in your shop, uh, for like a week or a couple days or something visiting. And you were showing him the ropes about some titanium welding and I'm sure some other things. Uh, and so, you know, like, I'd love to hear some about that. And, and just like, you know, like who, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, like who helped you when you were getting started. And then that role of like, you know, sort of passing the torch and helping other people in, in this community that we have, that's, it seems to generally be pretty giving and and sharing and helpful. And yeah. 
Yeah, that, thanks, Joe. Um, yeah, Elliot was out. Uh, I don't know exactly. It was probably like three or four days he was here. Uh, we had a great time and, and nerded out on bike building stuff like so much. My head was spinning, um, <laughs> but we covered a lot and it was fun. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm motivated to do what I can to help other people out. Um, I feel like I'm always learning new little things and that this is a very challenging job in a number of ways, uh, a yeah. big one being making a living. Yep. So if somebody is is into it and they've kind of dedicated themselves to that and, and want to make a go at making a living at this, you know, I would like to be of help to them. And, you know, like you said, people would have been very helpful to me. And I would say probably the most in that regard would be Carl Strong, where I'm sure a lot of your listeners know of Carl. He's a fantastic builder. He's a smart businessman, a super nice guy. Uh, he's shared a lot of really great information about running a business as a bike builder. Um, you know, and, and some of these things I think we don't, you know, obviously we're not here because we want or so love QuickBooks and, and want to run a business we're here because we want to build bikes and be welding stuff so but then reluctantly you're like okay yeah i have to run a business as well i have to learn how to do this stuff you know why am i bleeding money you know all these questions so you know it's like being efficient with your time and good at fabrication is, is helpful in that regard and you know but making a living is challenging and there's a lot of different aspects to the to the business and i'm happy to share what i can and I feel like, you know, I've learned a lot from Carl and too. One of the things that he's sort of repeated is, you know, I don't know his exact words, how he would necessarily describe it, but kind of, you know, what everything is connected in the custom bike world and you want, you know, the quality to be high and the people to stay around and be building for a long time because then they're going to get good at it. Um, every year they'll get better and better and that it is a hard business. So you do see, or we have seen a lot of folks that come in and they're around for a few years and then they are just like, this is impossible. I can't make any money and they're gone. So, you know, that's, that's not a good thing for, for anybody. So, you know, trying to help out with people moving along and getting through the hardest learning curve a little bit quicker and, um, you know, making good bikes and being able to make a living at it too. Yeah. There's a, one of the people who's been a real mentor to me and I've gotten to know personally is a machinist who makes YouTube videos, Tom Lipton. And uh, really, I really super appreciate what he's done by making these YouTube videos about manually machining and, and fabricating and stuff. And uh, that's how I learned most of what I know about that work. But anyway, there was uh, an interview that he did on a different podcast and he was saying the, the role of like teaching and sharing this knowledge, you know, that he learned all this stuff from all these years of working in different shops with, you know, these old guys that, that, you know, they, they were willing to spend some time to teach him things. And he's learned a lot over the years. He's about, you know, 55 or 60 or somewhere in there. And anyway, he was saying, ultimately this knowledge doesn't belong to him or to anyone else in the trade. It, it belongs mm -hmm. to everybody. And he's just kind of borrowing it. He's just kind of lending it. And it's like, it's sort of, if, if you know it, you know it because other people helped you learn it. And it's like sort of, to some degree, it's a responsibility if you care about that work to, to pass that information along. And so, you know, I mean, you, you can't just uh, spend all of your time selflessly giving away information, but, uh, you know, it's it, you can't let it die with you either. And I think there's a lot of that in the, in the metalworking trades. And um, 
in different places that are sort of threatened where the <laughs> the body of people doing it are aging out of it and, and younger people aren't interested. It's maybe a little bit different with frame building. There's a lot of younger people who are sort of interested, but I, I, what he said about it not belonging to the individuals, but that it belongs to the community, that sort of resonates with me. And I feel like uh, to the extent that we're all able, it's really important that we try and share the things that we learned from other people with the next generation. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great things about your, you doing this and this podcast is it's helping to kind of connect people more and share a bit of information and perspective is, you know, so many of us are just kind of head down at the workbench. A lot of us work on our own. And so, you know, we don't necessarily communicate with each other that much, but it's, it's nice to share information. I always like to see how people approach things and what tools they use. And I get new ideas. And, you know, with Elliot being here, he, you know, I, he learned a few things from me and I learned some stuff from him too. You know, he's mm -hmm. a super smart guy. Yeah. He's got a lot of experience with CNC. He's a good yeah. welder, you know, so it's just, as we kind of talk through how we go about things and, and ask each other questions and, and look at this stuff, you know, there's always a bit of learning and I think it just advances the whole frame building game. And so I'm all for it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, good on you for taking the time to, to <laughs> pass some of that information Thanks. along. Um, I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, this is a general question I ask a lot of people, which is, you know, now that you've been doing this uh, for, you know, quite a number of years, what is some advice that you have that you would share with other builders? Or you can also think of this as, you know, advice you'd give to your former self that maybe really would have helped you when you were banging your head against the wall uh, in the early days or, or both, uh, if you have answers for both. Yeah. Well, I think at this point I could write a bad book about that topic, but um, I won't go into all that. Um, I would think that, you know, trying to just look at how long stuff takes and then how that translates to the wage that you're earning and not sinking too much time into something that you're not getting paid for because you've got to get paid and it's difficult. So, you know, for me, one of the examples I gave as we were talking was look is I think that my paint program initially was a source of a lot of time going in and like very little money coming through that. So basically going backwards, mm -hmm. um, you know, so I don't know what that's going to be for everybody. It's all going to be a little different. Um, yeah. You know, trying to sort through the whole money thing is, is challenging. There's a lot of variables, but, you know, just having a consciousness that you need to make money, um, you need to be kind of efficient with your time in order to do that. Um, and then, you know, seeing what that translates to for you and your own individual process. You know, everything is like you'll get better, you'll get faster as you go. Um, I can move through this stuff fairly quickly now that I've done it so long. Um, it was, you know, obviously a little slower in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the computer end of things in the email and all that seems like, you know, that's, that's almost a bigger area for efficiency than fabrication. You know, you just take the amount of time that you need to do something really well and you'll get a little faster and better at it as you go. Yeah. I always, uh, I always like to think of a, I always wanted to get to a fabrication process where I was employing the sort of measure once, cut once <laughs> approach. Yeah. You know, which, uh, right, conventional wisdom is measure twice, cut once. Be really careful so you don't scrap stuff. But I think in order to be really efficient and effective with a lot of 
machine work and, and shop work and stuff, it's good to be able to really have that confidence that you've done something a number of times, you know what you're doing and you don't yeah. need to, you don't need to verify things with extra redundancy. And yeah, like, you know, that, that having a main tube miter fixture that, you know, um, is dead on or whatever it's calibrated and all these things so that you can just kind of like, I think Carl Strong said that he's actually very slow about how he builds bikes. You know, he, he, it's a very casual pace, but because he just, he, he's done it so much, it actually happens really quickly and it takes him a couple hours to build a frame. And, you know, which drops my jaw because I, I don't know if I could finish a good bike frame. In less I think than like that three basically days. what it, the, what's really going on with that he's just really good at. It. And so it doesn't take effort for him a lot. Like even now with having this, you know, the virus thing happening and nobody's coming over less phone calls, all that stuff. And I'm just like working is like moving from one bike to the next project a little bit quicker than would be normal mm -hmm. it's like the the process has so many overlaps and it reduces the amount of like mental processing and thinking because it's slightly more habitual and you are doing something very similar and you know how to do it and you know what the problems are and what to avoid them and what stuff needs double checking and what stuff you don't have to do you know multiple times and it's like you're, you get a little bit of a muscle memory thing going. And so things just sort of move along faster and with producing better res results without really trying hard, it just happens because of the repetition. So, you know, trying to be building often and, and regular and, or at least practicing is really helpful. I think for someone kind of getting started as well. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, that's most of the questions that I had for our call today. And uh, if you have any other messages you'd like to share, then uh, you can do so. But uh, otherwise, we can wrap it up. Yeah, well, Joe, thanks so much for having me on the show. And, um, you know, I'm exciting to see what next stuff you have coming up. I don't want to um, pull us into that at the moment, but um, I would love to talk to you about that some other time. And I'm glad to see that you're doing what you're doing and you're clearly excited about it and, and the industry. And it's great to have some new um, talent on the machining side of things, you know, for our tooling and frame parts and all that. Um, you know, so thank you for the podcast and for doing what you do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great to, to be here. Um, I love building bikes and, um, yeah, it's just a really cool industry. I, I want to keep it healthy and strong and, and moving along. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you. And yeah, I couldn't do this podcast without frame builders, uh, volunteering their time. Nobody, nobody gets like a kickback or any, I don't really make any money on this, but <laughs> nobody gets a kickback for it. So, uh, for someone to volunteer their time is huge. Cause I couldn't do this. You know, I think my perspectives alone are not nearly, they're really not worth a whole lot. You know, I have only built like 20 bikes. So when folks like you have been doing it for decades, uh, take, take the time to share your experience. That's what really makes it happen. And so, yeah, I'm very thankful to you. And, uh, well, Thanks for pulling us out of our caves and making us <laughs> sort of talk to people about this stuff. Uh-huh. Cool. Well, thank you very much, and, uh, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Joe. Yep. Bye. Bye.